Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm excited today, Zach, because we're doing something. I don't think we've covered this once really yet on History Hack in two years. No, I don't think so. I had to do a lot of Googling to try and work out what the heck we were going to kind of discuss when yeah. it came to putting the questions together for this one. Because believe it or not, we do actually do some prep for I know. this. I know it I know. sounds it's... like we're just making it up as we go along, but we're not. We're not. Um, and we have a great guest to help us through this because we're going to look at Iron Age Britain and we are joined by Lindsay Buster. She's a lecturer in prehistory at Canterbury Christ Church University and is a postgraduate research associate in archaeology at the University of York with a particular interest in the Iron Age, including funerary practices and cave archaeology. Now, if you're not hooked already, I don't know what's wrong with you. And frankly, I don't know why we took so long to invite a guest on to look at such an interesting topic. But Lindsay, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Shall we set the scene before we dive into the archaeology of all of this? Because I'd imagine a lot of people perhaps aren't that au fait with the Iron Age. So what are we referring to when we talk about it? Are there sort of different phases within the Iron Age? And sort of, I was gathering from what I was reading that you have it kind of arriving in different areas of the world at, at different times as the sort of some of the technology shifts and transports to, across the um across the different continents uh, and what kind of a world are we looking at in terms of things like climate and the development of that technology yeah well so the iron age um it was developed as part of this three age system um in Scandinavia, um, in, an, in a way to um, order the cataloguing of artefacts in museums. And so the period is really defined by this new iron technology that comes along. It doesn't replace bronze, um, but it certainly 
is added to the repertoire um, and it develops um, in the in the Near East and and moves um, across Europe. Um, and so, yes, the, the Iron Age starts in slightly different places across Europe, depending on where this Iron Age um, or this iron technology um, reaches particular regions and particular areas. Um, in terms of Britain, we're always quite, quite late to the party in all of these technologies being so far away from kind of the development um, or the source area for them. Um, and so in Britain, we're talking about um, really the last truly prehistoric period. So that's the last period where we don't we can't rely on on written sources, um, which is why the material record and archaeology is so important. Um, and so in Britain, we're looking at a period from around about 800 BC um, all the way up to when the Romans arrive in AD 43. Um, well, that is the case in southern Britain, at least. Um, one of the tricky things in Britain is that the Romans have different influence um, the further north you move in the country. And so the Iron Age, um, for, exa for example, in southern Scotland or even Atlantic Scotland, so the far northwest of Britain, actually extends much later. And in fact, in that Atlantic region, all the way up to um, the Norse period um, of AD 800, um, but for, for our purposes, for, for kind of southern Britain and most of the evidence we'll be talking about, it's 800 BC to AD 43, which is the Claudian invasion of Britain. What does Britain look like? Um, it's got quite a similar landscape to, uh, to what we have today. So we're looking at a landscape of um, field systems and um, settlement enclosures. The settlement record is also dominated by um, hill forts, which are basically kind of fortified um, enclosures uh, defined by banks and ditches, sometimes on hills. They're not always on hills, so it's a bit of a, a misnomer. We don't always know that they're forts in that kind of defensive, um, in that defensive aspect. So hill forts, a little bit of a catch-all category. Um, but they'd have been, you know, practicing kind of mixed farming, wheat, barley, oats rye and then domestic animals such as cattle, sheep and pigs. Um, it would have been quite an open landscape as we see today. A lot of deforestation took place from the Neolithic up to the Bronze Age. So we're not looking at a heavily forested landscape. A lot of the wild species such as bear and lynx and aurochs, which are a, a kind of native, very, very large wild cattle species, they've become extinct by this point. So we're looking at a landscape which might be quite familiar to us. Um, but hopefully, as I demonstrate through this podcast, actually, the Iron Age has many things about it which are particularly unusual and, and unfamiliar. And I think that's something that we need to bear in mind um, in terms of climate, um, pretty much as, as it is today, actually. Um, the Bronze Age, so the preceding period was a little bit sunnier, a little bit warmer, but things uh, begin to go pear-shaped at the end of the Bronze Age in terms of climate and it gets colder and wetter. So very much actually... Um, you know, the climate that we have today. Can I ask about the discovery of iron? Do we have any sense of why somebody decided to work this particular type of metal in this particular way? I know that uh, nobody can ever kind of go, okay, the person who discovered it was for something that happened so far back. But do we have any sense of, of people kind of tinkering around with different types of rocks to try and extract metal ores from them and how you know, iron became the, the thing that sort of fell out of that process? 
Yeah, well, a lot of these technologies, particularly metalworking technologies, develop almost by accident. They're a very, very gradual process. Um, and I think they probably develop out of ad hoc experimentation. Um, in order to understand ironworking, we probably need to go back a step and look at bronze working, which which um, happens in the preceding period. Again, this is a technology that develops um, in the Near East and, and Turkey. And actually, when uh, the first copper ores, uh, where we get bronze from, are being exploited um, in the in the Near East, um, it's actually uh, Britain's Neolithic period. So we're using still using stone tools and stone technology. So it takes a long time to get to us. But it's probably that, um, at least in terms of bronze working, copper ores, which, you know, sometimes have this beautiful green colour because of the oxidisation of the copper, were being used actually uh, for pigments or being turned uh, into jewellery or ornamentation for the, for their, you know, their lovely colour. And also the discovery of what we call native copper, which is copper that's not bound to an ore. It, it occurs in, in the earth's crust um, in its kind of, uh, final copper raw copper form so people are probably exploiting those kinds of um, technologies first and then from there they're developing um, more and more sophisticated technologies um, which eventually develops into the alloying of copper with particularly tin uh, to make bronze which is much stronger and much more durable much better for making things like agricultural tools or um axes for example than pure copper which is very very soft and is not very practical um, and not as good as actually the previous stone technologies it seems that when these technologies are adopted um first of all they're adopted as kind of prestige objects and so these new shiny materials come in and they're used for things like axes but thing but axes that probably wouldn't have functioned very well but were more about showing off your latest bling um, but as i say when we get alloying with uh, with particularly tin um, and the development of bronze, then that technology really explodes into a whole range of tools and weaponry, um, lots of things associated with agriculture. And that's actually uh, really um, central to uh, the story of Britain, actually, in the Bronze Age, because they have uh, copper mines at the Great Orme, for example, in North Wales, and the summer Ross Island um, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, but also tin. Tin is a very, very rare resource. And uh, one, one of the sources of tin is Cornwall. Um, and so Cornwall actually becomes kind of the centre of the Bronze Age universe at this time. And it's really from those technologies that ironworking then develops. Um, again, it's, it's brought to Britain probably fully formed. It's not something that is developed or discovered in Britain. And it follows the same kinds of process as bronze work. The very earliest ironworking is sort of experimental, very low quality iron is produced. Um, iron has a higher melting temperature than copper. Um, and so the ways that we see metals being exploited in prehistory is that those with the lowest melting temperatures, um, such as gold and silver, then copper are exploited first. And then the ones that are slightly more difficult to extract from their ores, like iron, are exploited last. Um, and so, yes, in the early Iron Age, we get you know, kind of experimental metalworking, ironworking um, in Britain, producing a very small range of artefacts alongside bronze working, not very good quality. Um, and then that improves through the Iron Age. I should mention at this point that the, the ironworking process in Britain at this time is um, is uh, creating blooms of iron. Um, it, and that's where the iron doesn't fully melt and it needs to be reheated and processed 
um, many times over to refine it. We don't get um, cast iron technologies where you can actually pour molten iron into casts until about 1500 AD. Um, and so this is a very different kind of iron working that we're looking at um, in prehistory. I think um, this is a complete bugger of a question coming at you right now. But um, how did people live in Iron Age? What do we know about society and functions at this point? So is it based around a tribe um, or is it a different social structure? How would life look to us from the outside? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And this is kind of one of the central questions that archaeologists grapple with, you know, how we talk a lot about material culture, but actually mm. what, what we're trying to study through all of that is the structure of society and how people are relating to each other and their landscape. Um, again, this probably develops through the Iron Age. Uh, we have some sense of social, the beginnings of social stratification in the Bronze Age. Um, certain people are obviously um, controlling the extraction and the production of these uh, metal ores and, and these metal artefacts and engaging in re- very... Um, long uh, large uh, trade networks across Europe and we do see in burials for example in the Bronze Age certain um, high status individuals coming to prominence so there is definitely an element of social stratification. Um, Whether we can talk about tribes in the Iron Age is still something that is hotly debated certainly um, possibly towards the later end of the Iron Age uh, when uh, societies are interacting with the Roman world um, this is, again, another way in which people can, can gain prominence and status. Um, when talking about Iron Age Gaul, which is modern day France, um, Caesar cer- certainly mentions uh, lots and lots of different tribes um, and various subunits of tribes and various confederations. So larger units of tribes. Um, and we get hints of that possibly relating to Britain, but not to the same extent. Um, And certainly when Caesar um, has his first interactions with Britain, he's unsuccessful in conquering Britain, but um, he does meet with um, several people that he calls kings. Now, whether that's kings in kind of Caesar's language uh, or something that uh, people in Rome would recognise as kings, um, we're not sure. And it might also be that at at this time, um, society is, is... uh, operating on a on a slightly flatter level, something that we would call a heterarchy, perhaps, and that's where different people come to prominence depending on the roles needed at the time. So maybe a certain person is chosen as a war leader at a particular time of uh, conflict, or someone else comes to prominence um, as a politician when d- diplomacy is needed. So it might be that these kings are actually um, relatively recently elected and um, only fleetingly um, hold that kind of position of power. Uh, we have things like hill forts, and certainly people have argued that the, these kind of uh, defended or these um, enclosed settlements might represent um, the residences of elite or leaders. But actually, the evidence is pretty patchy, and it doesn't look like hill forts had one uniform function across Britain. Quite sometimes we find them very, very densely packed with settlement and craft working technologies. But at other times, there doesn't seem to be very much inside hill forts at all and one of the interpretations of the that these are actually communal gathering places for people um in much the same way that some of the the ceremonial monuments that we see from the neolithic some of the henge monuments um are functioning at, at those times so um the jury is out on exactly what kind of society uh, we're looking at here and it, it probably varied region by region and over time and in terms of um 
different regions contract with the, the Roman world, certainly towards the end of our period. Can I come in and talk about sort of day-to-day life, particularly for inverted commas, your average person? And, and perhaps that's harder to answer than what it was like for um, those who might have had greater positions of authority as far as anybody had a greater position of authority during this this point in history. It always kind of strikes me as quite a, a tough existence, quite a bleak life. Perhaps that's just kind of us being accustomed to the comforts of modern society. But what's life expectancy like? What sort of ailments are people suffering from um, day to day? What are they having to do? Presumably that you've got kind of basic needs to gather food in one form or another and attend to those basic needs. So talk us through it all. Yeah, I think life would have been quite tough um, in the Iron Age, as for most of the rest of prehistory. Most people were probably living um, subsistence lifestyles based on mixed farming, um, some craft working um, to, you know, um, to keep themselves self-sufficient. Um, they were living in uh, roundhouses, uh, which is, is quite an unusual settlement form, actually, or house form on the continent. Everyone's uh, living in square or rectangular buildings had, as they had been done, doing for millennia. But um, in the late Bronze Age and into the Iron Age um, in Britain, this circular form of architecture uh, emerges, which is really particular to the region and very interesting. And we might touch on some of the reasons of that later. Uh, but they're probably um, living in extended families, so uh, maybe between 20 and 50 people, depending on the size of a, a roundhouse, which uh, really forces us to think about privacy and you know our our modern attitudes to privacy and you know what is what is considered private and what isn't it would have been a very very different experience i think um in the iron age they may have been um living with animals at certain times inside their their roundhouses um, animals have probably would have needed protecting um or overwintering in structures but they also would have served to keep inhabitants nice and warm um sharing your your house with your animals um and as i said they probably would have been um going about their daily lives doing mixed farming um some pottery making we get the, the evidence evidence for looms at this time so lots of weaving of wool and cloth which would be a great way to express identity with the use of natural dyes lots of grinding of grain uh, we talk about the daily grind and this comes from the you know the, the need for um grinding uh, wheat on a daily basis for your for your bread which you'd probably be having with some kind of vegetable stews maybe meat on a special occasion um, and some of the best evidence I suppose we have for daily life in terms of people's health and people's experience is through their skeletons um, as we might get on to actually it's very difficult for us to find the remains of the dead in Iron Age Britain but when we do and um, the skeleton themselves itself um, gives us a lot of information. Um, you probably would have been doing very well if you'd lived to the age of 40 in the Iron Age. We do find people living older than that, but quite a lot of people, for example, are dying at, at the age of kind of 25 to 35. Some people are dying in, in infancy. And the wear that we see on people's bones suggests that it was quite a tough life. Um, lots of osteoarthritis um, and other um, aspects or other clues that people are really uh, living quite labour intensive lives as I said that daily grind um, has a, a lot of impact on people's knees we see these things called squatting facets which show that people are kind of squatting in front of the fire or, or the quern stone which is um, a prehistoric kind of millstone um, for long periods each day um, looking at dental health 
for example. There's individuals who have multiple um, dental abscesses when they die. Um, and this, you know, there's no pain relief really in this period. Um, so, you know, something is, as trivial, we might think, as toothache would have um, absolutely have been able to kill you um, in the Iron Age, you know, if you've got an abscess and septicemia or sepsis from that. Um, and it's very likely that a lot of people did die from toothache in the Iron Age. So, yeah, quite a tough existence, I think. It doesn't sound much fun, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm thinking of like my Amazon Prime and all of my worldly comforts and thinking, no, I don't. Dead at 25 sounds quite grim. Uh, <laughs> you've mentioned burials already. A lot of your work is connected with burials. So what do we know about people's beliefs about death and how does that tie in with religion generally? Is there, is there, are there tells when you find a, a burial where you're like, I know that's Iron Age? Yeah, well, it's a curious thing about burials, actually, in the Iron Age. And again, this, this varies between regions and um, over time. But there is a, there's a saying, basically, in, that in Iron Age Britain, it's not necessarily the case on the continent, where we have lots of um, human remains, lots of burials. But in Iron Age Britain, the dead are considered to be elusive or invisible, uh, because we know lots and lots of people are living in the Iron Age. We have the archaeology, we have the settlement evidence to demonstrate that they are. But in death, we don't find them. It's very, very rare for us to find lots and lots of people um, laid out in cemeteries, for example. And um, towards the late Iron Age, we do get um, large cemeteries of people, and particularly um, in southeastern England, uh, large cremation cemeteries. In the Middle Iron Age, uh, there's a, a large um, regional tradition, uh, the Arras culture in Yorkshire, of burying people under barrows so um, these are kind of earthen mounds and you get uh, people being inhumed so that's not burnt they're just buried um, under these mounds but these really are the exceptions to the rule um, in most of Iron Age Britain it's very very hard to find people and it's actually that negative evidence that gives us a clue to what might be happening with people where we do find human remains um, quite often we find the odd bone um uh, of kind of select isolated bone are sometimes quite weathered, quite bashed about and um, deposited in very odd places on settlement sites, which is um, the bulk of our archaeological evidence at this period in relation to, for example, earlier periods where we have lots of funerary evidence. Um, in Iron Age Britain, it's mainly the settlements that we're looking at and we find these isolated human bones turning up in strange places there. And what this suggests to us actually is that um, the kind of the dominant funerary treatment in the Iron Age was probably something like excarnation. An excarnation um, essentially is exposure burial, something similar to um, what you might think about if you think about Tibetan sky burial today. It's basically leaving the body um, somewhere, either in a protected location, but um, quite often in a natural location, to be gradually and naturally disarticulated and defleshed by um, the wind, the weather, um, by scavenging animals. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And this is probably fulfilling exactly the same kind of function as other kinds of mortuary rite, for example, cremation, where you're doing something with the body to disarticulate it, fragment it, and allow um, maybe the soul or you know, something similar to leave the physical body and to make that transition to another world. Um, so it's not leaving people out exposed to be naturally disarticulated is not a disrespectful process or practice um, it's just another way of kind of dealing with your dead and facilitating that journey from one world to the next it seems then that maybe people are going back and interacting with those remains picking up the odd bone as a keepsake or a memento and going back and depositing it um, somewhere in their settlement uh, the research that I've done in roundhouses quite often these bones are deposited in people's houses themselves which suggests that people had very very close relationships with the dead actually at this time even though we can't really find them and that um you know it wasn't so cut off from daily life as it might appear today you know when when the, the dead are we are sort of protected from death and post-mortem care and those kinds of things so um i always say you know the dead don't really rest in peace in prehistory they have jobs to play and roles to play um and people are interacting with them and um, even if in an archaeological sense we can't always find them I ask about the people who do get some kind of burial. Do we have a sense of where they might have existed within the hierarchy? My sort of perception, and I suspect that this is um, just based on, you know, primary level. Uh, it's time team, Jack. Just admit it. It's based on time team. It's, it's not even time <laughs> team, mate. It's like, what did you learn at year three when you were also doing Egyptian mummies and stuff like that? <laughs> but my my sense is that you sort of have this, um funerary mound if you like and your uh, this is going to be an incorrect perception but your chieftain gets buried in your your mound and um then it's covered over and it's those sites that then give us some kind of clues about what people like to be buried with and so on that's probably all completely bogus so please feel free to educate me do we have that kind of thing and perhaps more interestingly do we have any sense of what people might have been buried with um, and whether or not they had that kind of sense of an afterlife and you want to take your prized possessions with you yeah it's a valid question and again it's something that we we grapple with as archaeologists certainly for any period um in prehistory and probably in the historic period as well we don't you know, what we find in the archaeological record is definitely not everybody that was alive. It's a it's a small percentage between probably one, one and 10 percent um, of, of the people. So we do have to think on what criteria of the people being selected for burial. Certainly, um, some of the, those regional traditions give us a better sense of a good cross section of the community. For example, for example, that Aras culture that I was talking about in Yorkshire um, and uh, one of the famous sites, Wetwang Slack is its name, has about 400 people uh, 
buried. And so that's a really nice kind of uh, cross section of society that that we don't normally see. Certainly there people are buried with very, very specific things. And we do get some sense of hierarchy, um, but also the the ways in which people understood themselves and their relationship with society. There does, for example, seem to be um, quite strict um gender categories in terms of what people are buried with, whether you're buried with um, a brooch, for example, or a sword, um, you know, uh, and, and we have a lot to unpick in terms of gender in the past and what it means and its implications for the present. But there do seem to be some very specific ideas of um, of how you should be portrayed in death. And I think this is, this is one of the problems that archaeologists find in interpreting the burial record, because they are highly symbolic and ritualised contexts. We're not looking at the everyday that we might be looking from settlements. We're looking at people creating identities for themselves in death. Um, and quite often that might be conforming to much stricter ideas of what is appropriate than actually what was happening in life in terms of, for example, gender. Uh, so, um, in the Arab culture we do get some really special burials which are very unusual and these are chariot burials these are people buried with uh, dismantled chariots and all manner of accoutrements um, including offerings possibly for the afterlife so joints of meat which actually they joints of meat tend to um, occur in in all of the graves suggesting that um, people are being provisioned for the afterlife but certainly in the chariot burials um, we find horse harness fittings uh, mirrors um, if if they're kind of women, if they're female. So we don't just see men buried with chariots um, and weaponry shields. And whether or not this represents um, the, the roles of these people in life um, or a sort of mortuary tableau, a kind of a theatrical performance created by the mourning individuals to say something about their society at that time, uh, we're not quite sure. And there's this very common... Uh, mantra that we that we say in archaeology this very common phrase which is the dead don't bury themselves um, and it's really important to remember that and actually so a lot of what is going into the grave um, and a lot of the performances surrounding the funeral may well be more to do what with what the living have to say to other bystanders and other people attending the funeral than it does about that dead individual um, themselves so you know a very valid question and a very tricky one in a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, to to answer actually if I can chuck another one at you and change tack again uh, how does conflict work during this period so we talked about forts um, Maiden Castle stands out as an example of an Iron Age fort how representative is it of conflict and defence during the Iron Age in Britain yeah that's an interesting question so from about we do have evidence for interpersonal violence um, throughout Britain through prehistory, um, you know, even from the Neolithic period onwards. From the late Bronze Age, uh, we start to see specialised weaponry being made in bronze. So swords, for example, um, some of the, the 
implements that might have caused in, interpersonal violence before that. For example, stone axes obviously are multifunctional tools. You could pretty much hit someone over the head with anything. But in the late Bronze Age, we start to see um, the the creation of specific kind of weaponry for interpersonal violence in the um, in the guise of swords. We also see defensive armor, so shields, helmets, things like that. And that continues into the Iron Age um, in iron. Um, so yes, there's certainly lots and lots of evidence of interpersonal violence um, in the Iron Age. Um, and this is, this is becoming uh, more recognized, not only through the settlement evidence and the artifacts themselves, but also looking osteologically at skeletons. So looking at sharp force and blunt force trauma. A lot of the early interpretations of hill forts uh, was that they were sort of put up as um, last stands against Roman invasion, and they were places where the Romans would uh, would corral basically Iron Age populations and and employ siege tactics. We don't think that so much anymore. As I said, lots and lots of hill forts um, have lots of activity going on da of daily life happening inside them, suggesting that. Um, in many cases, Hillford is a bit of a misnomer. But there's certainly lots of evidence of interpersonal violence between Iron Age communities. So not necessarily, you know, external forces, but actually uh, between communities. Maiden Castle, as you say, is a really interesting um, example. There is a, a, a so-called cemetery outside the East Gate that was excavated by Mortimer Wheeler. So it's known as Wheeler's War Cemetery. He was very convinced at the time um, that this was a massacre by the Romans of an indigenous population. Um, and the the kind of interpretations have flip-flopped ever since. Um, this is a site that keeps being returned to um, in terms of thinking about interpersonal violence. Um, certainly there's lots and lots of trauma on the skeletons at Maiden Castle. There's an example of someone with um, uh, a, a ballister bolt or, or a spearhead lodged in their spine. So that's pretty definitive evidence, you know, for interpersonal violence. But these people are also laid out um, with grave goods, which doesn't suggest they've been buried particularly in a hurry. Um, and some people suggest that actually the interpersonal violence was not um, not the product of the Romans, but actually interpers interpersonal violence between indigenous communities. Can I also, again, we're, we're going to change tack again on you, apologies, but we're going on a whistle-stop tour for this one. Roundhouses, you talked earlier about how this was a kind of development that was quite unique to Iron Age Britain. Um, why, why a roundhouse, I guess, is the, one of the, the big questions. Um, I'm also curious about how you identify a site like that. How do you know that what you're looking at is a roundhouse and i'm not being kind of facetious with that because obviously once you've found your various post holes then you can work out okay this was a, a circular dwelling but as an archaeologist when you're going hunting for a site like that how do you know that you're looking at something that is a post hole i guess is where i'm going with it yeah absolutely thanks for that question so um there's quite this is um there's loads that i could say about this actually and as you said the roundhouse phenomenon it's really um specific to uh, Britain and Ireland at this time um, everywhere else on the continent um, except for parts of northwest France actually um, have square or rectangular architecture at this time and for that reason it actually took us a very very long time in British archaeology to recognize roundhouses because we kept looking for square things um, and the type of excavations that were taking place um, in the middle of the the 
20th century uh, were quite small keyhole excavations, which meant that you weren't really exposing things in plan very often. And uh, for a long time, uh, because people couldn't find square buildings, but they did find a lot of pits, so big pits dug into the ground. Uh, for a long time, people thought that Iron Age people in Britain were living in pits with little roofs over the top, <laughs> um, which to, to us today doesn't sound very likely. And indeed, that was incorrect. And it was actually a German archaeologist, Gerhard Bursi, who was one of the first people to recognise roundhouses in Britain. And that was because um, he was using an, ex an excavation technique that they used in Germany, uh, which was large area stripping um, of sites. So rather than these small keyhole trenches, he stripped large areas of topsoil. And then suddenly these round structures started appearing in plan. Um, identified, as you said, uh, mostly by post holes, sometimes with uh, circular, what we would call ring, uh, ring ditches or ring gullies. Um, and the way that you identify these negative features um, is that they're normally infilled with much darker, more organic rich material. Um, and they stand out like spots um, against the, the background geology. Um, why we think they're roundhouses and not anything else? Uh, well, as I alluded to, this, the, the nature of the archaeological record shifts massively in the late Bronze Age from large ceremonial monuments, um, lots of funerary monuments such as barrows um, and henges and um, you know, these kind of big ceremonial landscapes um, that we find in earlier prehistory. And they tend to disappear or go out of use and are replaced by almost exclusively settlement evidence. As I said, you know, the, the dead are elusive, um, apart from in very specific regions. And so we know pretty much when we've got a circular structure that that's going to be um, a settlement or, or a house rather than a, a funeral uh, monument. It's, a, it's an interesting question that you ask about how we identify roundhouses and how we study them, because although we can identify their outlines, quite often the floor surfaces, which would give us a clue and as to what kinds of things are taking place in the roundhouse are completely truncated by later activity. And so it's actually very, very difficult for us to reconstruct exactly the kinds of processes that are happening in roundhouses. There's lots of pits, which are good traps for material. But in terms of working out um, exactly in which bit of the roundhouse certain tasks are taking place, that's really difficult. Um, and even when we do find artefacts in roundhouses, um, they don't necessarily reflect a sort of Pompeii. It's not the case that their distribution reflects exactly um, what people were doing in that roundhouse at any one time. It turns out that Iron Age people were actually very house proud and they swept out their roundhouses often and kept them scrupulously clean. Um, so if you find a roundhouse full of stuff, um, there's a slightly different explanation for that rather than people having just upped and left and, and left their rubbish behind them. And you did a big archival project on this uh, as part of your PhD, I believe. So talk us through what you were looking for and what you found as a result of that. Yeah, I did. And I was working on a fantastic site called Broxmouth in southeast Scotland. Um, it's a hill fort site, but again, um, demonstrates the slight misnomer. It's only 25 metres above sea level, so not really on a hill at all. Um, but it, it, it's slightly raised from the rest of the East Lothian coastal plain, which is very low lying. And I was, it saw a, a huge continuous um, period of use for about 800 years, from about 600 BC to about AD 200. Now, in this part of uh, Britain, we're still in the Iron Age at this point. The Romans moved very slowly north. And so we can consider this still to be Iron Age at this point. 
And I was looking particularly at the last phase of settlement um, at this particular site um, from about 200 BC to about 200 AD. And um, I was talking about the difficulty of identifying roundhouses um, in much of, well, particularly England, but in much of Britain, uh, because they're represented by you know, just these negative features, these post holes. Um, but at Broxmouth, uh, the roundhouses were variously built from timber and stone, and the stone walls and floors of these structures survived really, really, really well um, and prov provided a great opportunity for me to study in detail the development of this settlement and particularly the development of a couple of the houses themselves. And it told me such interesting things about what it meant to... Um, to live in Iron Age society and be part of one of these households uh, because of all of the strange things that were going on in some of these houses. Something else that you specif uh, specifically look at is cave archaeology. So how does that work in terms of the telltale signs that is a site worth exploring and, and what do you actually find? Yeah, well, caves are fantastic sites in the fact that um, they've always been considered, I think, and still are today by many people to be these places outside of the domesticated world uh, we talk, often talk about them being liminal places so betwixt and between they're neither one thing nor the other they're not really part of the inhabited world um, and they're not really fully part of another world either there may be portals between them and um, yes I, I got involved in cave archaeology because I was writing up another um, archive of a site um, this time in northeast Scotland called the Sculptor's Cave where there's very intriguing evidence um, and this included uh, basically an assemblage of disarticulated human bones um, in this particular site. Um, as I said the dead are elusive for much of Iron Age Britain and so this was a fantastic opportunity to work out what people in this particular location were doing with their dead and what they were doing as they were coming to the cave and, and laying out their dead and again visiting them and interacting with them over, over a period of about 1500 years. How does what's happening in Britain differ from elsewhere in the world? Britain is quite unique I think in the Iron Age in terms yeah. of the rest of the continent. As I said, I've, al I've already mentioned a couple of things. So um, instead of having square and rectangular architecture, uh, we have round architecture. And I think mm. um, that that feeds into the fact that on the continent, there's also um, a, a good visibility of the dead. There's quite um, clear distinctions between the kind of funerary sphere, the sphere of the dead and the domestic sphere. Um, and in Britain, that all comes together at this point. The, the kind of ceremonial landscape and the funerary landscape disappears and everything comes into the roundhouse. Um, and what's really interesting is that the monuments that, that the ceremonial monuments that we see in early prehistory are all round um, in Britain and, and elsewhere. So the henges, um, the stone circles, the timber circles, the round barrows, they're all round. Um, and I think the roundhouses are taking their cues from from these monuments um, and basically transferring that symbolic power, that symbolic uh, sphere into the domestic. And just, you know, returning, I guess, to the roundhouses at Broxmouth, uh, people really did seem to be investing a lot in their in their settlements and their houses at this time. Um, there's one particular house at Broxmouth that's built in stone and it's rebuilt again and again and again, five times in fact, on the same house stand. Instead of dismantling the walls and, and reusing the paving, people actually rebuild 
the same structure inside the shell of the old one. So they keep all that defunct fabric, that fabric from their ancestors, from the previous inhabitants around them. They're essentially living inside of the shell of this ancient building. And every time they do this, they deposit um, little caches of artifacts in between the walls and under the walls and under the floors and into the pits. These aren't very shiny artifacts. They're nothing that we would get particularly excited about today if we found them. Um, bone spoons, uh, quern stones for grinding grain, uh, gaming pieces, um, and even human remains. So there's a cranial fragment and a mandible fragment, so uh, a fragment of the skull and a fragment of the jaw, um, actually deposited in one of these roundhouses at Broxmouth, just demonstrating that that whole, their whole world, their whole cosmology, the way that they understand the world around them, um, is really focusing down now onto the settlements and into the houses. Lindsay, this has been an absolute education. Um, there's so much that I've I've picked up from this that I was completely clueless about. Thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, if they head over to, uh, if, if they Google me and, and head over to either the University of York staff pages or um, Canterbury Christchurch University uh, staff pages, um, there's little bios about me and, and what I do because um, as you can see I, I do a couple of different different things um, and uh, a list of my publications which deal in a bit more detail with some of the things that I've touched upon today which of course I could spend hours and hours talking to you about. And is there a book incoming anytime soon? Sorry say that again. Is there a book incoming anytime soon? Oh um, well I'm not sure I'm not sure we'll have to see watch this space. <laughs> Lindsay it's been great talking to you thank you so much for your time. Thanks. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.